Welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 135. And today I have another double act uh, for all of you listening today. Um, and by way of introducing my guests, um, I am going to um, uh, welcome in Dr. Jens Walter and Dr. Orla O'Sullivan. Hi, how are you both doing? Very good, thank you. So it's weird times, of course. Uh, we're recording this during some odd, odd things going on in the world, um, but we're going to try our best to be as normal as we can as well-prepared well uh, 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 practitioners. We had a joke in, a, in one of my last podcasts that we did um, last week where um, we felt that one of the best forms of of training for self-isolation and quarantine was was having done a PhD or working in a lab because it is essentially a form of self-isolation anyway. So for, for most of us, this is this is not an entirely abnormal scenario to find ourselves in. But um, we're going to make the most of it with this uh, this conversation we're going to have today, um, which will relate to the microbiome. Um, and I've done a podcast um, in the past primarily about probiotics um, with a professor, David Pine, um, um, which was a few years ago. And um, the topic of the microbiome, the topic of probiotics, prebiotics has popped up here and there in, in, um, in previous podcasts where we've talked about nutrition and health and um, strategies that we as sport and exercise nutritionists can use to help support the health of our, our, our athletes, whether they're recreational athletes or just normal people that do exercise or elite and professional athletes, which is um, yet, yet another sort of species, so to speak. Um, and I have a, a particular interest in this. I've, I myself have co-authored um, uh, a consensus statement on this. Um, and there's another paper actually that's coming out soon um, about the athletes' um, uh, microbiota. So there's going to be some interesting uh, correlations here. But today um, I have two two experts on two angles here, the microbiome and things like um, the, the, the sort of diet and dietary fiber and so on with Dr. Jens Walter. And I'll have you correct me possibly uh, on where your expertise is. And Dr. Orla Sullivan, Orla, um, you um, um, have contributed to or co-authored a, a paper which has looked more at the um, sort of how diet and exercise um, and their associated uh, extremes impacts gut microbial diversity. So I'm interested in having a, a really interesting chat about these, these various um, parameters here. So before um, we uh, run away with, uh, with this podcast and what we want to get into, let's just, let's just have you both introduce yourselves. So Jens, could you tell us a bit more about, about yourself and what you're up to as a, as a researcher? Yes, I can. So I've just actually moved position. So I moved from Canada, from the University of Alberta to University College Cork here in Ireland and to the APC Microbiome Institute. So my interest, I'm really a microbiologist by training, and I am very much interested in how mammals evolve with their microbiomes and how microbes within microbiomes evolve with their hosts and then how these communities assemble within host and the ecological factors that influence this assembly process. Also how these you know, communities are regulated and how you know, different factors, lifestyle factors, which includes things like diet, 
influence this and how you know changes in our environment and in our lifestyle have actually altered this interrelationship and i and i view you know um hosts and microbiomes essentially a symbiotic you know um partners as or symbiotic relationships that that have evolved over over very long periods of times to uh, to you know generate essentially a mutualistic beneficial uh, a relationship and then i try to translate this understanding you know of how we have evolved with these microbial communities you know to you know to, to to stay healthy essentially i try to translate this into some practical aspects and develop um strategies mainly nutritional strategies but also strategies based on you mentioned probiotics or or other microbes you know to to modulate this interrelationship that we have with our microbiome to improve health i have to admit my my interest is less in, in exercise and more in uh, what we call you know modern lifestyle diseases such as with a, with an immunological underpinning such as um, obesity and associated pathologies but also autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis brilliant brilliant I, i'm really excited to to have you on as a guest jens and uh, uh, we're certainly going to pick at your uh, your brains and uh, benefit um, from your knowledge uh, in uh, shortly aura so tell us tell us about yourself and, and what you're up to, please. Yeah, so I'm a computational biologist. Um, I work at Chagas Food Research Centre in Cork, and I am an investigator with the APC Microbiome Institute. I guess I have, um, I suppose, a keen interest in the role that exercise and diet play on, in elite athletes. Um, it started with elite athletes, and I guess we've evolved into non-athletes, um, maybe weekend warriors, trying to see can we train um, couch potatoes to become more like athletes just through training their microbiome. Um, and this has evolved as well into looking at the metabolome and looking basically to see the effects of travel on athletes, the effect of stress on athletes, the effect of changing one part of their diet, um trying to mine for athlete specific probiotics within our athlete um fecal collection that we have um and i guess yeah just to see can we translate the extreme fitness and the extreme role that this plays in an athlete to the general population fantastic um uh, that i'm again i'm really excited to have you here and uh, dig into into as much of that as we can. Now, I should point out that this is an enormous sort of topic that could run into uh, down many different uh, proverbial rabbit holes. And indeed, um, I, I've got other um, guests that will be on in future podcasts to tackle certain areas specifically. So um, this this episode is is not so ambitious as to try and get into everything, of course. Um, but what I'm hoping to do is to um, make a good start on this on this topic. And Jens, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was, um, you know, partly, well, what happens is when I invite somebody on who's not specifically a sports scientist as you did, their response typically is, is ah, but I'm not a sports scientist, I'm not a sports nutritionist, I'm not sure, um, you know, that, um, that what I have to offer would be necessarily relevant. And of course, my comment 
which is something I talk about a lot on this podcast with my guests is that, that, you know, and this is, this is an observation and um, almost a criticism, I guess, of sometimes how we focus on sport and exercise nutrition uh, within sports science, where we, we take a very reductionist approach. You know, we look at athletes as athletes and consider them less as human beings and the various things that, that influence them in, you know, as far as the bigger picture is. And of course, with nutrition, um, there's a lot more to human nutrition than what we look at in sports nutrition, of course. And one of the key sort of roles and responsibilities of a sports nutritionist, a performance nutritionist, is um, not so much about performance, ironically, but it's more to do with keeping our athletes healthy. Um, and Ola, you just made a good point there where you talk about things like, you know, the traveling athlete. Um, and I've had other guests on where we've talked about the impact of, you know, travel and um, on sleep and uh, other guests on the, the impact of, um, you know, altitude, uh, env other environmental factors like heat and temperature and so on. So, I mean, that's just monumental different areas we can get into, which is why uh, I'm on 135 episodes, I think, on this podcast, and I'm nowhere near done. <laughs> and I'm sure on this particular topic, um, there, there'll be uh, close to a dozen podcasts probably that will get there. Um, so let's, let's come back to this. So, you know, the microbiome, probiotics, prebiotics is gaining a lot of interest, that's for sure. Um, Jen, you can help us understand you know, sort of a bit more about the origins of that and, you know, um, you know, sort of a bit of, bit of history maybe on, on, on how far down this sort of road of knowledge that we've traveled in terms of research and, and general understanding, because one thing's for sure is in the realm of sport and exercise nutrition, and I'm, I'm sure Ola will be able to help us with this one, is that it's going to be a considerably younger um, body of knowledge within the context of sport and exercise nutrition than it is in the sort of the, 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 the broader area that, that um, you would have spent more time on, Jens, in terms of health uh, and so on. But I think um, since this is a, potentially a really deep um, topic that we could um, uh, lose a bit of sight on, I think let's start off with a definition maybe um, about what the microbiome is, Jens, and why not so much to athletes, because we'll get into that, but, but why, why, is, why is there so much interest in looking at the microbiome and why should we take it seriously? Why is it important that we do so? Well, the microbiome, by, when there are different definitions out there, but you know, essentially it's the microbial you know, populations that are associated with our body. You know? And if I say microbial, you know that refers to bacteria, but also other organisms like fungi, you know, protozoa, and then many viruses actually, not coronavirus fortunately, but, but you know, viruses that actually infect um, bacteria. So what you, you end up with are very complex ecosystems of microbes and ecosystems, you know, that are, that are quite, quite dense, you know, in, in populations um, that are really tightly associated with our with our um, body, and um, the reason why this field has gained um, you know such a tremendous interest is that, as I mentioned, these microbial populations you know have been with us you know for millions of years. You know they predate 
the agricultural revolution, they predate the industrial revolution, and they have evolved, um, you know, to fulfill essential functions for our body, you know, and, and in humans, this is probably a little bit less obvious, but if you, if you look into, you know, the animal kingdom, you know, and you look at um, herbivores, you know, then you realize, you know, that, that none of these herbivores or, or most of these herbivore species would simply not be able to be on this planet. You know, they've only evolved, they've only emerged because of the symbiosis that they have established early in their evolution, you know, with, with, with microbes. Now, cows, for example, mainly go through in their animal kingdom. And I think humans are no exceptions. You know, we've, we've evolved um, interrelationships. We have evolved anatomical features to maintain um, or they fulfill essential functions, you know, to, to our health, yeah. Um, if you said the history of the field, you know, they, um, if, you, if you read current literature, it's often referred to that the microbiome is, you know, a, a, it's a recent field or it's a recent, um, you know, topic of interest. And I actually don't think that's the case. I think this is probably, this, this notion is driven, you know, that there is, a, there is an explosion of activity within the last 20 years. But the field goes actually back for more than 100 years where scientists mm. started to realize, you know, that, that this relationship that we have with these, with these microbes are, are really uh, sensual to health. And then, you know, um, early in the, in the 20th century, for example, scientists already realized, you know, that in the, in the stool of breast milk fed infants, you have certain bacteria that were actually called um, bacilli in these days, but now we call them bifidobacteria, you know, that are specifically selected for by components of breast milk. And now we are learning more and more that these microbes, you know, are absolutely sensual in how our immune system develops and, um, you know, how, you know, how we you know, are able to actually defend ourselves against infection, specifically in this, in this early, you know, window of, of, of development, we know where infants are very susceptible to infections. Yeah. And then it continues, you know, that there was a lot of research in the, in the fifties and sixties, where we actually started to work with, with, um, especially rodents, but also other animals that we were able to raise, you know, without any microbes at all. And that's all the, this is called canodobiology and the ability to use, you know, germ for your, um, um, mice and rats and also, and also pigs. This was a fascinating experimental model, you know, in that we could compare animals, you know, with um, a microbiome, with actually animals without a microbiome. And this, you know, research really established the basis on what these, um, you know, microbiomes actually do. And what we learned from this research is that they do a lot, you know, they influence the metabolism of the host, you know, they influence how the entire immune system then develops. And now in recent years, you know, we find out that they even influence, you know, how, how the brain develops. And there are, you know, um, you know this gut-brain axis interactions between the microbiome in, in, in the brain, yeah. And then in more recent years, you know, then I think microbiome research was very much inspired by nutrition. You know, there was a lot of interest in the um, risk of colon cancer, for example, in the 80s and 90s, um, with good evidence, you know, that, that specifically diet microbiome interactions are important 
you know, in the, the, the risk of, of, of the development of colon cancer. And I would actually make an argument that many, you know, food products that nutrition is linked to colon cancer are probably, um, you know, detrimental because of their interactions with the microbiome, such as red meat, such as, you know, products high in saturated fat. And then really within the last 20 years with the advent of, you know, you know, these multi-omics technologies like next generation sequencing and metabolomics that all are already mentioned, you know, the field really just, I would say, completely exploded. You know, with now I think we are at around 20,000, you know, journal article a year. What motivates me really is this, this, you know, this fundamental role that microbiomes play in our biology um, and the the notion which which that, that especially fascinates me is you know that that these microbiomes you know have been with us for for you know millennia and what we are doing in in, in you know modern life you know is essentially disrupting this you know symbiosis you know and we are doing this i would say almost systematically you know the way we you know, we, we, we have babies now that are reared by C-sections, which disrupts the microbiome early in life. You know, we, 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 we formula fed babies instead of breastfeeding, which um, removes certain nutrients they have specifically evolved to, to support microbiomes. And then, you know, in adult life, we are essentially eating a diet that has nothing to do with the diet that our, you know, whole physiology and our immune system has evolved with. But it's also a diet that is essentially deprived of nutrients for the microbiome because it's so refined and so de de depleted of dietary fiber. So now we have this concept, you know, that we are essentially starving an essential component of our biology with the way we're disrupting it and we are starving it. And this, um, and I think we have good, you know, evidence from animal models that this has detrimental outcomes and might well be the reason for why we see certain chronic diseases, you know, increasing dramatically within the last 50 years. Yeah, it's, I, I, it's, it was interesting as I was reading yesterday, um, one of the several papers you'd sent over to me to, for, to recommend for me to read. And there's a, a statement you make there about, um, you know, there being a pandemic of, um, you know, non-communicable diseases which of course is something that as nutritionists generally not sports nutritionists, but just generally it's something that we've, you know, become obsessed with um, things like, um, you know, obesity and diabetes and the gamut of metabolic, you know, diseases out there and cholesterol and all these other things. And, um, you know, usually the thoughts are on, well, let's all eat low fat diets, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's try and, um, you know, up our, um, oily fish to, you know, try and balance out some of the wrong kinds of fats and so on. But the idea that, you know, the, 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 there are, that it's even more complicated than that. There is a, there's a, that there's something else involved, um, which will bring back to the microbiome, um, is, is absolutely fascinating. And it makes a lot of sense, of course. Um, um, particularly when you see, people doing the same things but having different you know it impacts them in different ways um and i know that you know like for example when people when we have conversations about the role of genetics for example 
we have to bear in mind that you know that we have more in in common than than not in terms of of you know whether or not we should put a lot of time and effort into doing things like uh, genetic testing and so on to you know to uh, come up with um strategies to individualize nutrition programs and or uh, the controversial area of um you know trying to select um you know uh, uh youths as being you know more likely to become elite athletes or not you know um and it's this inter it's this individual inter, in, intra and inter individual variation that is something that provides us with a lot of uh, difficulties of course um in research but also in, in trying to translate this science in into practice and of course you know n when we start looking at, at the microbiome and we'll delve a lot more into that in a minute and how that impacts um you know not just health generally but how our body is able to use food um and the body's ability to you know do things like harvesting of energy and and um you know i it's 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 fascinating which we'll we'll get into but Ola, just to just quickly um pop over to you for a second you know we we've, we've talked about um the history of of the microbiome and and it's clearly um, showing significant relevance to many of the health challenges that we see today. And Jen's made a point, which is something that, that we talk about in nutrition a lot, which is, you know, modern lifestyle being an issue and we adopt extremes as a result of that. But of course, by definition, an athlete um, is quite extreme. Um, maybe you could just, cause I want to get back into this in more detail. So don't go too far with this. Um, <laughs> but, but, but how would you differentiate a sort of general population, um, uh, uh, you know, to, a to, to an athlete in the context of, of these extremes, bearing in mind, both general population and athletes are also following combined a modern lifestyle. Yeah, I guess it depends on the type of athlete you're looking for at really if you have a, an athlete that's in a, a part of a team what you tend to have is that teams are well financed and they'll have nutritionists on board and their diets are controlled to within an inch of their lives and that they're told what to eat when to eat and so you have a <clears throat> very diverse diet tailored to each athlete's needs um, so say, for example, our first um, study into this area was with the Irish rugby team. And even within a, within a rugby team, you have two very different types of athletes. You have the forwards, which are quite bulky and strong, and then the backs, which would be lean, fast, and they'd have two very different nutritional needs. And so their diets then, as a consequence, would be very tailored to that. And also their sports programs, so their fitness programs, would be very tailored to that. But if you just look at the general population, then you kind of find that people tailor their exercise regimes busy to what they like doing. So if somebody likes to run, then they'll run a lot. You know, if somebody likes to go to the gym and do spin classes, then they'll focus on that. So I guess what the difference is, is that athletes would be, have a varied diet, tailored to their energy expenditure whereas the general population just tend to do what they like doing without yeah. tailoring their diet as a consequence of the exercise that they're doing yes and of course the human element adds complexity does it not because you know we we have personal choice personal 
preference, yeah. religion, uh, socioeconomic impacts. There's just a vast amount of things. And, and presumably, um, actually, I'll bring this back to Jen's uh, Ola, because I've got, there's a lot I want to get in, into with you on, on that, Ola, um, as it relates to, to, to the athlete population. But part of what I want to get at here is, you know, I, there's, in previous podcasts, we talk about things like the translational potential of the science into practice. And that's really what our focus is here is, you know, there's, there's, there's the information that exists out there in the textbooks, in the, um, in the journals, and so on. And there is, there is far more stuff out there than we could ever possibly read, let alone try and apply into, into practice. And of course, you know, we, particularly as practitioners, we, 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 you know, we need to have some degree of, of confidence in, in what we're doing and, and, you know, and we need a filtering mechanism and various other things, which makes this all rather complex. And I think one thing that I think would be interesting, Jens, is, you know, given the vast amount of variation that exists between people um, in the environments in which they live, the choices that they make, um, um, you know, even different areas within the same country, um, the traveling patterns of, you know, well, obviously not right now during this scenario that we're in, um, but there's lots of things, you know, as a scientist, how do you, how do you get through all of that to try and understand, um, you know, what, or, or, or take from that, um, you know, some of the things that you've already mentioned about how we know how important the microbiome is and, um, you know, the relevant impact that things like nutrition and the modern lifestyle has. You know, I, I like this. I read this in a, in a review article. We are dealing with a daunting complexity. You know, and then if you work on the interface between the microbiome science and nutrition, you know, you are actually at, essentially at the, in a situation at the moment, you know, where virtually not much is established yet. You know, I mean, if you, if you look into the nutrition field, you know, there was just the controversy about all these meta-analyses about beef, you know, which actually went even a little bit scandalous, you know, with some scientists, you know, trying to then prevent these papers from being published, you know, by contacting, you know, the editor of the respective journal. As you see on the highest nutritional level, and this was, these were top level, you know, nutritionists to know more about this field than I do, there is disagreement, you know, about essential, you know, component of, of, of human nutrition, you know, I don't have to go into the low-fat, low-carb, you know, um, controversy, you know, which I would say isn't settled. And then if you go into the microbiome field, you know, then um, this is a, from, from, you know, tangible, you know, advice and, and what, you know, really to do. This is a, is, is a, is a novel area. You know, we, you wrote an article about probiotics, and I think rightly so you mentioned, you know, that we don't really know exactly which probiotic to recommend, you know, for, for, for most conditions. So it's, 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 it's um, a little bit um, overwhelming in, in parts. The way how I approach it, again, I, I approach it from a big picture kind of, you know, um, yeah, approach in which I look, you know, are there certain you know, low-hanging fruits, um, you know, to actually improve human nutrition um, in the context, you know, of, of, of the microbiome. And I would argue that there are, 
you know, certain, you know, um, aspects there, you know, and for example, you know, the, the importance of, of dietary fiber, for example, you know, in, 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 in a diet rich in, in plants and um, products, you know, that vegetables and nuts, which then coincidentally also, you know, um, agrees with a lot of the nutritional guidelines that are actually out there, you know. You mentioned, um, you know, healthy fats, you know, have been, you know, kind of advocated for by the, by the nutrition, you know, societies. And, and coincidentally, we do have, in fact, you know, studies on the microbiome who show that, you know, um, saturated fat has a much, much more unhealthy relationship with the microbiome, you know, by inducing, you know, saturated, um, inducing uh, certain biases that then enrich or pro-inflammatory you know, bacteria. So it's, it's from, from a, um, you know, I think there is a certain, you know, kind of, you know, knowledge that you acquire over, you know, decades of reading in this, in this field to then, to then build, you know, a certain framework of, of how you actually um, and approach it. But from, from what I see is I do, from, from, from how I read the nutrition literature and the microbiome literature, which is the two fields I'm mainly um, familiar with, I would argue that in the last, you know, five to seven years, there is quite a bit of con consensus that emerges in these two actually, to a large degree, unrelated fields, you know, but that, that you see what, what, you know, for example, what is recommended um, on the healthy eating plate from Harvard Medical School, you know, um, with the high plant and vegetable diets and with, you know, reducing the amount of sugar that you're eating with replacing, you know, your saturated fats with, with unsaturated fat and with, you know, replacing the refined carbohydrates with, with, you know, grains that are whole. If you look at this literature and then you go into the microbiome field, which provides a certain, you know, mechanistic underpinning for some of these nutritional, you know, components and how they interact with the human body, then you can actually you start to see actually that there is agreement on certain aspects of, of this nutritional advice. And that's at least my strategies, but you know, I give, I give presentations on nutrition and trust me, I get challenged on, on these um, and you get, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the meat eaters and the people who believe in an Atkins diet and, and the, you know, the low carbs and, and so it's, it's 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 still, I would say, a scientific field in notion. Right? In yeah, notion. yeah. Well, trust me, in my field, uh, uh, yeah. The, these debates. You mentioned the low carb thing. I mean, we're talking people that have fist fights literally and proverbially over these topics. It's amazing. I've certainly had. Um, I've done podcasts on a number of topics um, in uh, certain areas uh, where there have been differences of opinion. You know, for example, like the impact of, um, um, you know, certain signaling mechanisms um, and how diet and exercise, you know, affects these things. And, and you know, largely, actually, the, the differences of opinion is, is linked partly to the fact that, that we don't know very much. So this is, what we, this is what we know thus far. The problem with that whole translational thing that I was mentioning is, is the, you know, the other side of it, the... Um, you know, the, the consumers of this, this knowledge aren't as well versed with the topic um, because they tend to be generalists. Um, and, uh, you know, understandably, what they don't realize is just how 
early we are into this into this journey because there are certain topics like the low carb one but i think the microbiome is another one and also genetics generally is getting um and i'm going to sound like a geek when i say this but these are quite sexy topics <laughs> i find them fascinating and people certainly do um you know and we'll come to this in a in a bit but you know like for example since we're talking about microbiome you know there there are there are labs offering tests that you can do these microbiome tests and um, somehow um, come up with a, a you know a, 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 a personalized prescription to um, um, you know resolve whatever problems that there are, um, which is all very interesting. Um, and I'm definitely going to be interested in, in in your opinions, which I'm pretty sure is the same as mine. Um, Ola, just because I mentioned you know, about the history behind this topic and how long, you know, Jens has made it clear that there, there's a number of decades um, that's led to this point. But where are we at in, in, in this as it relates to sports nutrition or athletes? Um, I think we're very early in the field, definitely. I th like, so we published our paper on rugby players in 2014, and that was the first look at the interplay between exercise and the microbiome in humans. Um, I think we've subsequently published 10 papers and there's been um, other groups have published some still, but it's still really early. And all we're doing at the moment is still gathering data. So we haven't, all we have is associations between exercise and the microbiome. We have no causative factors. We have no definite links. There's been very few, few interventional studies outside of interventions in mice. And I think the nature of athletes is quite difficult to do an intervention and to change an athlete's entire diet, especially in a, in, within a competition season. So from that perspective, we are definitely very early on in the field. And I, don't, I think it would be very difficult to expect an athlete to, to change their complete diet on the promise that it might improve their performance. Yeah. Um, and I think in the microbiome field in general like Jens mentioned the multi-omic technologies these have like when I, I finished my PhD in 2004 and next generation sequencing was barely a blip now you have third generation sequencers and you've got like millions of gigabytes of data being produced yearly and we, we, we don't know what to do we can't handle this data correctly you're talking about people producing profiles of people's microbiomes we don't even know what the profile of a healthy microbiome is so yeah. i think you know we're, we're a long way away from it being a, you know a part of your your healthy you know a part of your annual medical yes like absolutely yeah well I, I, we could have the same conversation about genetics and various other things of course but um i get something that, mm -hmm. that comes up a lot in these conversations i have is you know um and i'm sure jen's will We'll, we'll, we'll agree with this um, from the wider perspective or the wider sort of research community that an issue we have in sports nutrition, all of, um, that you've just inferred, and, you know, it is an issue, of course, is the accessibility that we have to participants is not the same thing as general population. And, of course, elite athletes aren't that easy to get a hold of anyway. Um, but we're talking very small yeah. numbers of participants, typically in sports science research, relative yeah. to 
you know, the, the sort of more public health or, or medical um, studies, which tend to be massive and vast compared to, to what we're doing, which of course brings us back to, you know, how confident can we be um, in the sports science community in what we're, in what we're learning. And, um, and again, I think that goes back to my earlier point with, look, it's all valuable. It's just a question of how we choose to interpret that and the limits to our understanding of, of that knowledge. Um, is where I think things go wrong, particularly when you look at the sports nutrition product industry and how crazy they can take these things with, you know, I mean, it's a billion, billion dollar industry, uh, depending on which type of supplements we're talking about. I'm not sure what the figures are for probiotics in terms of supplements, uh, prebiotic supplements, functional foods. I mean, it's vast. I mean, you can go even just regular, not even health food stores, but supermarkets. You you see all of these products, which probably you both start scratching your heads and going, how 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 could this be the case? But Jen, just to bring this back to what I just mentioned, um, you, you you mentioned that you know um, actually not all scientists are even agreeing on these on these topics. So it's a developing body of knowledge um if it's even possible for you to say this and and whether or not it's controversial from your perspective or the, or your perspective is going to be controversial just just how close are we to having some sort of a consensus of of being able to say well actually we kind of know what's going on um and therefore we are in a position to confidently start making these changes with very high degrees of confidence, particularly with things like nutrition strategies uh, and supplements. And I guess we'll, we'll get into some of that because I, I will preempt some of this and say, well, there are certain areas, of course, that I think that you feel more confident about. Um, you mentioned fiber, for example. We can talk about that in a second. But just generally, um, uh, and, uh, and I'll stop talking in a second and, and let you carry on, but just to re remind you know everyone here why we do this is because i'm interested in not just you know how cool the science is and how sexy it all is but how relevant actually is this to practice because us as practitioners there's a limit to the amount of things we can get our athletes to do our clients to do so we just need to learn to prioritize um which is why these conversations are so so useful i think you know, the, the question is how far are we? I think it really depends on what you are looking at. Mm. You know, so, so there is different levels of evidence on, you know, certain, you know, you know, approaches, you know, and how they are, how beneficial they are. And we do that to some degree also to what degree the microbiome is. You know, the, the paradigm example for me is clostridium difficile diarrhea. You know, this, so this is, um, you know, a diarrhea caused normally by, by chronic antibiotic use, you know, where you deplete your microbiome, you know, this pathogen Clostridium difficile, you know, grows to, uh, um, you know, high number produces toxin and can, you know, generate a, a serious disease um, that is, uh, that can be um, lethal. And, the, you know, the best cure um, to this disease, um, if it's recurrent and it can't be treated by antibodies, antibiotics is, is a fetal transplant, you know, so as you, you actually, you know, put the, 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 the fetal, you know, microbial community of a healthy individual in these, you know, people suffering from this clostridium difficile and, um, you know, 90 plus percent 
of cases you actually achieve a complete cure. So here, you know, we have a paradigm example. You know, we have a microbiome, we have a, uh, a disease that is linked to the microbiome. And as, as all I said, you know, in a lot of these cases, we only have associations yet. You know, we, we know the microbiome is different. We know it's potentially even disrupted, but we don't really know what are cause and effect relationships. With Clostridium difficile, we actually know it, you know, and, and we can fix it. You know, we, we, we have kind of a, a specific target and an approach that actually, you know, fixes the, the, you know, mechanism by which the microbiome actually contributes to this, you know, disease. I would argue there are other aspects, you know, like breastfeeding, you know, early in life, you know, where we have not only very good evidence that breastfeeding is beneficial, which is, I think, virtually no one um, doubts that, you know, and we have, I would say, good evidence, you know, that a lot of these beneficial aspects are linked to the microbiome. And then going, to, you know, as you mentioned, the nutrition field, you know, although there is, you know, certain, uh, you know, aspects that are controversial, I would argue, and I've really just finished reading a review about, you know, dietary fiber and look at the, you know, the evidence from observational studies, but also intervention studies, you know, the evidence is, I think, pretty striking, you know, that with, uh, with, uh, with, if you boost your fiber levels, you know, to 30 to 40 grams, then you ha actually do lower the risk of, of, you know, weight gain, obesity, colon cancer. You know, I wouldn't say that this is now not on the same level of, of evidence, but I would say, you know, the evidence is, is actually pretty strong. To what degree this is linked to the microbiome, this is um, difficult actually to establish. You know, I would argue some of these effects might be microbiome dependent and others might be microbiome independent. And then from there, you know, you go into the wild west of the microbiome and nutrition field, you know, and, um, and I would argue that, that much of what is out there at the moment has not really yet been tested, you know, to the degree that you can make firm, you know, recommendations. Yeah. I don't know, Ola, did I forget a success story? From the microbiome nutrition field that's worth mentioning. No, absolutely. The the C diff one is 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 the paradigm. You know, the one that I would always use as the example as well. No, brilliant. Um, look, I mean, look. As I said at the beginning, there's a lot of things we could talk about here, <laughs> uh, and I am going to get into other related topics um, with other guests um, over the coming coming months. But um, there's a couple of areas I want to bring us back to before we. Um, progress a bit further into this conversation, particularly as it relates to sport and exercise, um, Ola. So uh, one, of, one of the papers, um, Jens, was your um, paper on the fiber gap and the disappearing gut microbiome. I love that uh, concept of a fiber gap. Um, you know, it, it, whether we're working with just normal people or, or athletes, um, recreational or elite or, or whatever, there, there are certain things that are common to all of us, and, and that is undoubtedly our diets have changed. You've mentioned, you know, things like evolution over thousands and thousands of years and so on. And even, even just in the last 10, 20 years, I can see how people have evolved their eating habits. I've evolved my eating habits. Um, but this, this concept of a, of a fiber gap I find particularly interesting. How did that come about, Jens? Is is that because that's the big one that stands out the most, as you've kind of already mentioned? I think the fiber gap, the original 
you know, concept developed out of the nutrition field and in simply just, you know, by, by making recommendations for how much fiber should be um, consumed. And this is, you know, that has been done, you know, with methodologies, you know, how much fiber, you know, improves, you know, bowel habits and how much fiber is considered, you know, to be necessary to, to prevent, you know, um, you know, uh, metabolic, you know, um, you know, aberrancies, you know, that the nutrition field came up with these, you know, numbers of, of around 25 to 38 gram, and it depends on, you know, which, which uh, organization you look at, that this would be, you know, the recommended amount of dietary fiber to be consumed. So the, what, we, what we find out now that at least on a global uh, a population basis, no, nobody or, or very few people actually reach these recommended levels. And there is now um, an additional, you know, kind of level of thought to this is that, that, you know, that not even the recommended levels might actually be enough, you know, and this goes about, it, it's again, you know, probably to some degree inspired, you know, by, by an evolutionary view, you know, that we have, have consumed much, much higher levels of dietary fiber than these 38 grams. We, we actually probably consumed 100 grams or more. But there is also now, you know, results from meta-analysis and from some intervention studies who show that it's probably more 50 grams of fiber that would actually be beneficial. So I, I would argue, and, and I, I know I'm not alone in the field, that the fiber gap is probably larger than what, what we think in, you know, traditional nutrition. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I find this particularly interesting if we bring it back to something that you mentioned, actually. Um, interestingly, which is one of the arguments that rages in my field, which is this idea of, you know, low carb um, or high fat, you know, ketogenic diets and so on. And of course, going down a ketogenic or a low carb diet also means you're going to have a low fiber diet, of course. And if, if, you know, if you're talking to someone who's not one way or the other biased towards nutrition, um, sports nutrition or has a particular perspective, but you're talking about someone who um, is talking about, well, what's good for the microbiome? Um, I think this becomes rather interesting, which is something that just doesn't get talked about in, in our field, sport, sport and exercise nutrition, as, as an argument really against the whole low-carb thing. Um, because from, the, from a microbiome perspective, the low-carb diet is almost the worst you can do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do read the literature, I do see the successes, you know, in weight loss. I think they are undisputed, you know, I think there is huge benefits, metabolic benefits in improving, you know, insulin metabolism and everything. But from a microbiome perspective, you know, the, as the entire metabolism of the microbiome turns into something much more detrimental, you know, the, the metabolic compounds that have been, you know, um, characterized in metabolomic studies show that these low carb diets, um, you know, result in a lot of protein fermentation in the gut, which results in chemical compounds such as, you know, amines and some phenols and stuff, which are, which are carcinogenic. And then on top of it, you're probably pretty likely to completely starve your microbiome, which then you know, turns to your mucus layer, which degrades this. And it's probably then also a pro-inflammatory diet. So, so I, it, it is, it's incredibly difficult then also, you know, to do because there are, there are the benefits and, and, the, and the detriments like everything in life, you know, it comes with 
with with um, advantages and disadvantages, and then at the end you you have to you know determine you know what is actually you know more important or also you know I always wondered you know because I'm I, I I'm a little bit surprised that there is not more research on actually combining the whole idea of a low carb diet with an actually high fiber you know you know or or a low carb diet in a high fiber context because the two wouldn't actually necessarily conflict with each other, you know, because diet, the low-carb diet, of course, is, you know, prevents, you know, um, you know, the sugar spikes and everything, you know, and, and, and the, you know, the glycemia, but fiber wouldn't induce that either, you know, and you would basically potentially get the best of both worlds, but I'm not aware of any intervention studies in that area. So the, the, the I'll partially answer that, actually. So the, the way that, the, so you've got your, polarized debates going on of low fat and high carbon and, and so on. And they're, they're all out there throwing rocks at each other. And it's quite sad actually to see some rather intelligent, mature people losing, losing all sense of uh, rational uh, behavior over these things. Um, but there's also a middle ground, which is where we use terms like uh, nutritional periodization or um, it'll be targeted strategies where it is, uh, you know, to a certain extent, the best of both worlds where um, we will uh, maybe have a low, uh, uh, not just a low carb day necessarily. It just might be the first half of the day prior to a training session might be low carb. And a reason for that is that it might, in, it might have an impact on increasing the body's ability to use fat as a fuel. The, um, you know, uh, we start manipulating substrates doing that. Um, and, um, there's, there's just lots of different ways of manipulating that. I've got, we've done podcasts on this, so we don't need to spend time on that. The problem is that people like a black or white sort of, you know, angle on this, it, it, it you know, good or bad, uh, needs to be low carb or high carb. For some reason, human beings generally don't seem to do well when we start talking about having to be a bit more strategic about that. Um, so whilst I mentioned that, and since we're on the topic of, of the low-carb type approach not being the best thing from a microbiome perspective, um, because practitioners, a lot of my listeners at least, I think, will be more into this periodization approach where there might be strategic in, you know, manipulations of the diet, which may result in some reductions in, say, fiber occasionally. Um, you know, whether it's important across a day would be interesting to ask you. Um, or is it more of a, you know, how it averages out across a week or a month or over the year? You know, from a microbiome perspective, how, how impactful are the acute um, changes within the diet relative to a more chronic um, approach to the diet? Cool. That is a difficult question. You know, in terms of changing the microbiome, that's going to be fast. You know, so we do know that you can change the microbiome. You know, within a day. You know, by a diet shift. You know, and there is even you know research on circadian rhythms. You know that the microbiome actually shows certain you know dynamics. You know, during the day. The the, the big question is now. You know, to what degree is any of this? You know physiologically relevant, you know, for the human. And I would argue that that research really hasn't been done 
Um, no, that's fascinating. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because, again, if it, this isn't about the low-carb thing, but like an argument against some of those studies is, you know, the, the, the intervention might only be like six days, 14 days, you know, three weeks. It's not very long. Um, so how do we really know, you know, what's going on? And you add to that, that the very small numbers of participants and another argument I won't bore you with, um, but it might be done on, on say, college athletes and not elite athletes. Um, that, that, that there's a propensity to call people elite when they're not really elite. You know, what do we even mean by elite, which um, I'll get into with Aura in a minute. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, you, know, you know, we're interested in the microbiome in this conversation, and we're interested in the things that impact it. And I want to get more into that in a minute. Um, with in relation today. to changing the microbiome, I suppose, something yeah. that we did um in a longer intervention is we took mm. two people two couch two people who weren't exercising and did a six-month intervention where we sampled their microbiome but uh, twice a week for six months and did the food frequency questionnaires watched their dietary intake did biometric testing metabolomics microbiomics and looked at the change on the microbiome and the metabolome on real life events. So changing their diet and how that directly alters their microbiome from a diversity or a profile perspective, changing meds, changing their lifestyle, increasing their fitness, coming off uh, an exercise plan or going on a course of antibiotics. And we were able to see how all these relative changes in a, in a lifestyle had a direct instant impact on your microbiome. Brilliant. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It also strikes me just how much more there obviously there is for us to learn on this topic. Mm. Um, but there's, there's cracks of information, isn't there? That I think, I think um, leads us to finding this ever more, more interesting, but from a practitioner's perspective, we don't want to wait. We want to get on with it now, you know, um, so just to bring us back, Jens, to sort of the bigger picture in the microbiome and, um, you know, you've made it clear that that has significant relationship with the body. And you, you've mentioned in one of the papers, you know, there's this triad, you've got the immune system and metabolism and, and so on. Maybe just so we can remind ourselves as to, as to what the microbiome is and how that influences the health and such. Um, maybe you could just bring us back to that quickly. You, you know, in, in terms of the microbiome influencing specific health outcomes? Yes, yes. You know, um, the, uh, again, the, the microbiome has been linked to, uh, I would say, hundreds of different diseases in the last, you know, 15 years. Much of this has to, you know, stand the test of time first, I would argue. But mm. what, I, what I would argue is that there is a strong, you know, link between the, you know, overall functions of the microbiome to the host, which to my, so when, when I look at, again, I'm, I'm a big picture person, you know, when I look at the role of the microbiome in human or mammal biology, then for me, three things stand out. The first thing is the, the competition with pathogens. As I mean, you know, we have this microbiome to, you know, avoid pathogenic bacteria to colonize our gut. 
Clostridium difficile, which we already mentioned as the paradigm for microbiome-related disease, is exactly this, you know, the, the, the microbiome loses its ability, you know, to fight the infection. The second one, the microbiome clearly evolved to provide calories. You know, it provides nutritional, um, you know, contributions to the host. That's more in, in ruminants, but in humans, it's probably still around 10%. So the microbiome is probably contributing, you know, to metabolic diseases associated with an oversupply of calories, you know. And there's this interesting, you know, notion, you know, that the microbiome well might well have been beneficial, you know, over over millions of years, you know, because we've never really had enough to eat. And now, you know, living in a society similar to the thrifty genes hypothesis, you know, that, that what was, you know, beneficial in a completely different context might actually be, be, be negative now. And this is not only a metabolic imprint, but it's also, you know, an immunological, you know, in impact, you know, in that the microbiome influences inflammatory processes associated with metabolic diseases, which I think are pretty well established in animal models. And then the third one, the third major function of the microbiome is it contributes to the development of the immune system. And this is why I think the early, you know, period of life, you know, where the microbiome samples is, is, so, is so critical, you know, in then the prevention of, of you know, immune-mediated diseases such as allergies and autoimmune diseases. And for me, you know, there is no direct evidence there, but all the coincident, all the indirect evidence points to it, you know, all the epidemiological um, evidence, you know, that C-sections and formula feeding and antibiotics early in life are linked to, you know, significant increases in risk in these immunomediated diseases. It all really fits and all the animal models, you know, who of these diseases show that the microbiome has a central role here. And there are, you know, dozens of mechanisms by which microbes, you know, interact with immune cells, you know, um, influence the development of the immune system. And then if that, you know, is disrupted, you know, your immune system might really just, you know, you know, don't function properly and you end up with an allergy or an autoimmune disease, something like that. And I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. The, where I'm going with this is as a, performance nutritionist, sports nutritionist, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, one of our prime directors is to keep our athletes healthy. Um, you know, and you, you've gone into that and I want to explore back in that a bit. And also with, with, you know, where the risks are with all are about, you know, what, what is it that athletes tend to do that deviates maybe from normal people um, in terms of exercise and associated dietary ex extremes um, that they're well known for. Um, but also, you know, we like in sports nutrition or even in general population who get into this uh, because they're trying to manipulate their, their body fat levels to a certain extreme, they, they can be, um, they, they can get into nutrition um, in, in very significant levels of precision because they're under the impression that, you know, they're, they're weighing their foods or they're using apps you know, to monitor their food, which is very common in sport and exercise nutrition community, the fitness community, um, and so on. And they'll talk about, you know, eating X amount, you know, an exogenous supply, an external supply of X amount of calories, you consume it, they will assume that that's how many calories they've absorbed, they might start thinking, oh, well, you know, there's a certain, you know, change to that 
formula on the basis of um, you know what happens through digestion and absorption and so on but but nobody's thinking about the microbiome <laughs> and how that influences you know um, energy uh, intake um, maybe if you don't mind you could just help us understand just a little bit more about that and the fact that this microbiome is important you mentioned 10 percent there but also the potential for variation um in that process which is why maybe we need to get less crazy about how obsessed we can be with one calorie over and above our special diets that we follow um you know may not be as uh, as specific as we think yeah man as you just mentioned you know that the the, the number that pops up in the literature is that the, the microbiome contributes 10% of, of nutrients to the human. But you know, this is just one value. This is going to be hugely dependent on the diet the individual consumes. Actually, um, you know, a high fiber diet would actually lead to the microbiome contributing more calories. Hmm. So actually, because, because fiber is fermented into short-chain fatty acids by the microbiome and these short-chain fatty acids are absorbed and contribute to, to energy. Butyrate, for example, and propionate um, both contribute you know, to, 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 to the energy supply. So it, it's hugely dependent on, on you know, the, uh, the, the diet the individual eats. And then you also you mentioned you know, the individual differences, which you refer to genetically. But the microbiome is even more different. It's even more individual. It's even more variable. Actually, we have quite good research on you know, monozygotic twins, you know, which are genetically, you know, quite, um, you know, similar and epigenetically probably at least more similar than, 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 you know, normal individuals, but their microbiome is almost as different amongst them, you know, than, than now with, 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 a, with an unrelated individual. You know, this is because we're dealing with ecosystems here, you know, and these, and throughout the assembly and over the years, you know, these communities, you know, have a certain amount of, of, stochasticity and how they then you know compose themselves so everybody is probably going to respond different you know to a certain you know diet and yes i definitely think it is you can definitely not make any generalization of, of an exact amount of you know nutrients of calories and that the that, 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 that individual should consume because there will be variation you know that comes into the microbiome and then so some colleagues in the field you know go that far we actually say you know that that actually you know that the 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 way we as individuals you know transform certain nutrients you know and how we respond to certain nutrients is um you know completely dependent on the composition of our microbiome meaning you know that 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 not even that you can 100 percent predict yeah, yeah? It's actually a field in, in the microbiome research at the moment that we are trying to, you know, use microbiomes in, you know, nutritional studies and then actually, you know, build models, you know, use predictive models, you know, to actually, you know, um, try to get a handle on how are we actually as individuals responding to, to different diets. And you mentioned these companies, you know, that are already offering this, you know, that you, you send your poop sample in, you know, your... They look into your microbiome and then through, you know, um, very complicated uh, bioinformatic algorithms, they are going to tell you what you now as an individual should be eating. So I think that's the future. 
and I think there is a rational for this, you know, because we already know that we we differ in how we, you know, ferment certain dietary fibers, and some of us ferment the dietary fiber that is completely untouched by others. Mm. But um, there's a lot of discussion at the moment on, you know, about these companies, and I would, I would, I would at least um, be cautious about, and I've already. Actually, I've been interviewed by, by a journalist who actually sent her poop sample to two different of these companies, and she got essentially completely contradictory <laughs> recommendations. Actually, I'm not surprised. Yeah. She told me her, her super food with one company, which was lentils, was the food that the other company told her to avoid at all costs. So, meaning, I don't, I think there is a rationale for this, there's a strong scientific rationale for this. It makes all the sense in the world. I actually have a big research pro project exactly on, on, you know, the personalized, you know, nutrition and in, in relation to the microbiome, but I'm not sure if we're really there yet as a field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about responders. So, you know, it's one of those, again, one of those things that plagues us in sports science and sports nutrition in particular is this concept of responders and non-responders. Uh, and, you know, just exactly what you've just been discussing is something that cannot be controlled for uh, with any... Oh, any we whatsoever. see responders and non-responders in every fiber study. We see colonizers yeah. and non-colonizers in our probiotic studies. And, you know, we are really just now starting to uh, you know, um, include this in our, in, you know, because you have to design your entire human trials then in a way that you actually account for this and that you are able to stratify your population based on this and again, build models by which to include this. And also, um, again, some groups specifically in Israel, they are already quite advanced in this area. And I think it is, it is something that others are now, um, you know, um, you know, taking into consideration. So, it, look, we've discussed a lot here already, and it's, it's just, you know, we, we just delved into some of the areas that, you know, that, what the microbiome does and why it's important. And you mentioned things like the immune system and metabolism and, and, and so on, um, um, which I'm looking forward to continuing um, in future episodes and podcasts and, and so on. But Ola, uh, you've co-authored um, a paper which was on exercise and associated dietary extremes and impact on gut microbial diversity. Um, so you've got a really good, and as you mentioned already about this, it was sort of the first paper on this, this area back in 2014. Yeah, 2014. Um, there are, you know, there's some interesting characteristics to what makes an athlete an athlete. Um, maybe you could take us through a little, a little bit of that and, um, uh, uh, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, I guess the, you mentioned like what makes an athlete an elite athlete because um, there's probably a large proportion of the general population who would train just as much as an elite athlete. Yeah. Does getting paid make you elite? Um, is it being on a competitive team representing your country? You know, at what point you cut off from being a good athlete to being an elite athlete, I get, and, and I get the, I'm not the person to answer that. And also, I guess what we've kind of grappled with is, are athletes indeed these archetypical fitness, healthy people that we should be putting on pedestals? Like who's to know what comes 10 years after you retire from an elite career? Are you suddenly going to end up with 
these autoimmune diseases, chronic illness, you know, so we're kind of putting, we put athletes up there as being, we all want to be like an elite athlete, but is that the right thing to be focusing your, your health on, you know? Um, and I suppose one of the big things is overtraining and that's probably a huge um, thing in your field, but in, when it comes to the microbiome, overtraining is a huge, has a huge impact on the microbiome. Like you know, overtraining will lead to GI distress, increased transit time, de- sorry, decreased transit time. So you're not getting the nutrients out of your diet. Another big thing is under eating for the calories that athletes burn. So what you're doing then is that your your microbiome is becoming depleted because it's not having that interplay with the food to get the nutrients. And you get these flourishing of certain bacteria that are just suddenly appear when you have this under nutrition. And they're they're big areas that that we need to look at when it comes to athlete nutrition. And uh, of course, as we we mentioned, the um, athletes tend to get involved with certain extremes, not just with their exercises, but also with their nutrition. And I guess, you know, with Jens, we've just been talking, um, you know, one area is those that, that either eat huge amounts of, or eat practically none of carbohydrate. And he's already mentioned about, um, you know, the, uh, why that may be a problem, um, as it relates to the microbiome or, or almost certainly would be, um, but what about, you know, some other things that you found in your research? And I'm thinking like with the rugby players who yeah, aren't average. Yeah. T- tell us about that. Yeah. So with the rugby players, the big difference we saw was the intake of protein. Actually, when we compared the rugby players to our control groups, the, the only difference in, at the macronutrient level was the levels of protein. So the athletes were getting 30% of their energy intake from protein. Um, so what we saw then, I suppose, as a consequence of that, when we looked at their metabolome, was a lot of the byproducts of protein intake, um, like TMAO, which we know has um, has been associated with increased cardiac events. But also then you have to look at TMAO. If you look at, say, the Japanese population, which would be very healthy and have low cardiac incidence, they, they have high levels of TMAO. So these are all just associations. But I guess what we wanted to take from the protein and it was actually whey protein was the difference. So they were taking high levels of um, the supplement whey. We did an intervention study as a follow-on from that to see could we take a general population, put them on an exercise plan and a protein supplement, and then a combination of both and see could we figure out what was driving so the, the diversity of the athlete's microbiome. So what we saw is at the end of an eight-week intervention, there was no difference in the microbiome of people. So therefore, we became we hypothesized that there's a big difference between fitness levels and an exercise program. So what's important to getting diversity in your microbiome is being fit, not going on a, a fad diet or a fad exercise program. So the athletes have grown to develop this diverse microbiome as a chronic adaptation to a lifetime of healthy eating and fitness that that's the the thing as well is that rugby players had a healthy diverse diet not all athletes do i guess some athletes would have be undernourished under you know under fueled but this was not the case with the rugby players that we were looking at 
Yeah, it's... Can I actually add to this? Mm. You know, Lauren, you were asking, you know, about these, you know, take-home message or the translation, or because that is something what Ola just mentioned that also stood out to me in in their study. I was not involved in this study at all, but I was, you know, when I started reading the paper, I was, you know, in the assumption, you know, these are rugby players, you know, they are going to pump them full with calories, you know, and they are going to be on these, you know, high-fat, high-carbohydrate diets, you know, just to satisfy their, their, you know, calories, but that's not the case. They are actually an outstandingly healthy athlete. As yeah. a nutritionist, you would actually look at this diet. I think they, they had several servings of fruit, several servings of, of vegetables a day. So there is a take-home message, you know, that, that you know, they're, they're, no matter what you are trying to achieve, you know, in terms of exercise, you know, you should still consume um, a, a healthy diet. And then, yeah. Another thing I would like to pick up what Ola just mentioned, you know, even if your goal is in this moment as a, as a, as a elite um, athlete, you know, that you, you know, want to have maximum performance, you still don't want to have to be at an increased risk for colon cancer than when you turn 50 or 60. Mm. So uh, I think if, if there is the one take-home message for your audience, you know, there is still, I would say, certain consensus now on what constitutes a healthy diet. And even the Irish rugby team is eating such a diet. Would that be fair to say? Yep. Yeah. I think diversity is the key, both in the microbiome and in your diet. So yeah. you can't cut out food groups and not expect a, a consequence in your microbiome. So if we were to... Because, you know, again, I, my listeners will be very familiar with me saying this, but um, it, when we talk about sports nutrition, the, you know, we tend not to take it from a, um, the perspective of, you know, meat, fish, eggs, milk perspective when talking about protein, for example. We just use the word protein uh, mm -hmm. and or calories, you know, not food as such. And of course, I've, I've explained in, explored in previous podcasts this sort of concept of the food matrix, um, you know, uh, whole food sources of these proteins or carbohydrates because there's more than just protein in these, in these foods. Yeah. Um, so, the, 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 you know, with athletes, um, and you mentioned the big guys, um, for example, you know, they're not necessarily getting protein from just chicken or fish or or eggs they're going to be consuming pretty large quantities of, of um, protein supplements which is popular across all sorts of sports but obviously the bigger the bigger the guys and the bigger stronger more powerful types like rugby players american football players and so on tend to be consuming a lot more supplemental forms of of protein um what are your thoughts about that in terms of supplementation um of certain foods like uh, protein supplements, but also energy supplements like carbohydrate drinks, sports drinks, that sort of thing. Is, it, is there anything there that we should be mindful of? Um, well, I guess the big difference that we saw with the rugby players is that they were getting their protein from whey. Um, and that's what we used in the intervention was a, a whey supplement. Um, it's, I guess, faster access for the microbiome. Well, what you are losing is the, the complexity. So if you rather than supplementing with whey, drank more protein milk. Then you're not only getting the whey protein, you're getting the casein, you know, the, the lactose, everything else that's also going to need more microbes to work on and going to need more breakdown products and then fuel your body better. But, you know, like I guess 
people are always looking for rapid access yeah. um, supplements and, and that's where the way come from. I think from speaking to athletes that we work with, I think there has been a move back towards milk as opposed to whey supplement. Um, especially now that, you know, protein milk is, is, is so available. Mm. Um, whether that's across the board, I'm not sure. But I think looking at your microbiome, you probably would recommend getting it from whole foods rather than supplements. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, look, and I, I'm very aware of there are all sorts of benefits to, you know, to even things like whey, for example. They've been seen to be beneficial in this, in this scenario. So maybe protein supplements is, is, is not an area that we might be concerned with. But, but Jen, you know, to, go, to keep going back to this low-carb or high-carb thing, you know, one thing that is prevalent in the general population is the enormous amount of refined carbohydrates that are consumed. And even if, even if it's not about the fiber, but it is about the sugar, uh, et cetera, um, this is something that is there in sports nutrition. Um, you know, athletes um, are people, particularly endurance athletes, um, will consume you know, certain kinds of foods to increase their access to fuel um, or general population who are, you know, training for a marathon for charity or whatever might, you know, carb up, so to speak, and they'll use cheap, easy, quick access sources of foods and or, you know, the, the, the huge amount of products that exist on the shelves in, in specialist supermarkets and so on, which are your sports bars, energy drinks and, and so on. Is there anything there, you know, in terms of, um, you know the uh, uh, um, you know the, the the way those those foods are manipulated uh, away from being normal. I, I, I would guess. You know, what are your thoughts on that, Jens? And I, I can't speak again. I, I I have to admit I don't read really anything you know specific you know to exercise you know. But yeah. But the but the only thing that that you know that that I was always thinking about is um you know is is then. I would, I would, argue, I would think, you know, that, that an individual that is on a heavy exercise routine would respond very, very differently, you know, to just the amount of sugar in the diet, you know, than, than an individual that is, that is, um, you know, inactive, you know. So I, 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 I wouldn't condemn, you know, certain energy, you know, bars or drinks or, or so, you know, for an for an active. And again, I, my, my, my sport days are, or my, my. Where I was, I was never an elite athlete, but I was at least um, recently. I, I did five, six, seven times sport um, a week. You know, when I was in my twenties, you know, playing handball and tennis, and my diet wasn't healthy in these days. You know, and I, I did. I, I still remember. You know, we had we had energy drinks on the tennis court. You know, and 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 I was oh God, I was I was I was more than I was I was probably underweight in these days. So I, I don't think, you know, there is anything you know, necessarily bad with it. But I, but I also, this is, this is not really a topic. I, my, my, in, in my research, I am concerned, you know, about the general population, which is more suffering, you know, from, from an, you know, obesity yeah. epidemic at the moment. And, and, and the, the athletes, I'm actually normally, you know, they are, they are, these are, they are normally not suffering from the, 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 the challenges that, that my research is concerned with. Sure. Yeah, and I, you know, look, I said earlier that I suspect, to, at least at a certain level, we've got more in common than, than we don't, as in general population. And, you know, the average kind of athlete, not that 
there is an average athlete, of course. But I, I guess where I'm going down then is you mentioned diversity. So microbial diversity, and we know there's, there's good bugs and bad bugs, but what is the relevance of this diversity, Jens? Um, and what do, we, you know, what do we know about that as it relates to, to health, which is the most important angle, I guess? Um, and, and what are the main things that impact that positively and negatively? So diversity, you know, again, causal information is hard to get, but diversity is linked to all kind of, of health outcomes. You know, all I mentioned, you know, rugby players have an outstandingly diverse microbiome, which is, you know, you know, potentially, you know, contributing to healthy aspects. And then in virtually all of these, you know, diseases that we've discussed, Clostridium difficile, obesity, autoimmune diseases, you know, inflammatory bowel diseases. All of these diseases are associated with a low level of diversity. The diversity, you know, just as the, the amount of species are, are just reduced, you know, and actually even modern lifestyle, you know, we know, for example, that the Hatsa hunter-gatherers, you know, or Amur Indian tribes in the, in the Venezuelan rainforest have much, much more diverse microbiomes then we have it. You know, what, to what degree this then contributes to health, and this is difficult to establish, but let's say there are strong associations that at least uh, in, in the gut, a healthy, uh, a diverse microbiome composition is, is important for health. And there are, you know, many hypotheses, you know, by which that happened, you know, a diverse community is more robust, you know, it is more able to actually fend off pathogenic organism and a more diverse um, community is also able you know, to utilize the more diverse area of, of, of nutrients and then, you know, potentially provide us with bioactive compounds such as short-chain fatty acid, you know, metabolic end products from fiber fermentation, you know, phytochemicals. You know, I think there is, there is at least, you know, um, I would say there is a good argument to be made, you know, to actually try and have a diverse microbiome and, and as all I mentioned you know the the only thing from what we know is how to diversify your microbiome is actually over longer periods of time you know to have a diverse healthy diet and that is likely you know to provide the substrates necessary you know to 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 keep the bacteria in your gut happy and and help you maintain this diverse community yeah, that's brilliant. And of course, that, you know, that's, that's the central theme that we always come back to, I find, on, on this as it relates to, you know, this, the, the sort of the balanced, sensible message is a balanced diet, uh, one, one, one way or the other. Ola, um, because your study there that you did didn't just look at um, dietary extremes, but also exercise itself. And you've already mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, I find this interesting that exercise could potentially also play a factor here. You, you know, what what did you find, and, and what are the where do you think this is going? Yeah, I guess in the rugby players, we found when we looked at the diversity and did correlations. Again, this is all associations. We found that there was two things that were driving microbial diversity. Um, one was this enzyme called creatine kinase which we were using as a proxy for fitness. So this enzyme is released from muscles post-injury. So when we measured this, and it's used as endurance for endurance athletes as well to look at how fit they're getting and how... how. So the higher the CK levels, the more diverse our microbiome was. And also then the higher level of protein that was in your diet, 
the higher your diversity was. These were just two associations that we saw with the rugby players. So the rugby players were fitter, had more protein in their diet and had more microbial diversity compared to, to control groups. So we then went on to do an intervention study where we tried to change, try to increase microbial diversity through increasing diet and protein intake over an eight week period and it was unsuccessful. So there was no change in the microbiome, the microbial diversity, which then led us to onto the hypothesis that fitness was what it was important and not exercise. From that, then we went on to do with the longer intervention over six months with two people to see over six months a change in fitness program could we change their diversity and we did so the diversity steadily increased as people got as these two individuals got fitter so one would train to do a marathon and the other trained to do an olympic level triathlon and this paper is just under review at the moment but you could see as the fitness levels increased and their their peak diversity was when they're at their peak fitness and if you did something like give them an antibiotic their diversity dropped if one of them went on a say a lads holiday for a week and their diversity dropped in their microbiome so fitness was important and in another study that we've done that's unpublished at the moment we looked at runners in our local area these were fit people they would have the same level of fitness of what we would deem elite athletes um, and what we were able to do with them was based on just fitness levels we were able to separate their microbiome from fit to fittest so exercise and fitness certainly does seem to cluster or shape your microbiome but how that's happening we don't know yet and even if you look at type sport type so we looked at the Irish rugby team the Irish Olympic team that went to Rio now the Irish Olympic team is quite small in numbers but what we were able to see is if we separated the sports based on uh, their static and dynamic components, you could see the diversity of the microbiome was different. So the more dynamic the sport, the more diverse the microbiome was compared to the more static sports. Yeah, fascinating. And of course, you've got the combination in that case of the, the exercise and the increased protein intake. Of course. Yeah, and what, what we saw with the Olympians is diet wasn't playing a role in the changing of the diversity of the microbiome. Yeah. So when we looked at the diet, we couldn't cluster their, these athletes based on diet or based on their protein, their calorie intake, nothing. It was the fitness and their, the, the static dynamic components was what was shaping the microbiome. Well, Ola, can I, can I ask a question then? Do you have any evidence to what degree is this linked to inflammation? No, not yet. Any. Like, okay. Again, it's just what we saw with the rugby players is that they had a better inflammatory tone compared to the controls. So you would imagine, I guess, based on the levels of CK that they were producing, that their inflammation would have been higher, but actually their pro-inflammatory cytokines were lower than the control groups. Yeah. So the reason why I ask this is I think there are some very strong connections in actually all kinds of populations and diseases that diversity is inversely correlated with inflammation. So yeah. Meaning the more inflammation you have, metabolic inflammation or also acute inflammation in inflammatory bowel disease, the more your diversity trips. So this 
could be at least one of the mechanisms by which diversity changes in populations or in athletes. Yeah, we did look at a non-athlete population, and this was a group of patients with IBD. To they had non-active IBD at the time to see could we use exercise as an intervention to kind of you know reduce their inflammation and it like it didn't affect their microbiome but it made their disease more stable so there was a role of inflammation there it's fascinating isn't it i i can see so many different angles we could go here i guess because we can't we can't keep talking forever about this um but if you know you mentioned um um obesity and you know this plays a role in how the body accesses and and utilizes uh, energy intake from the diet and so on and of course you know the overwhelming bulk of the knowledge comes from a sedentary or a primarily sedentary population um but one reason that some people will see a sports nutritionist um similar to to non-clinically focused nutritionists is going to be about um losing weight one way or the other so i guess we you know make this sort of more or less the last topic uh, that that we get into um you, what do we know about the role the microbiome has and um i'm not going to use the word body composition because that tends to suggest other factors like muscle mass and water and so on but but this concept of obesity or being overweight in the usual sense of the term what what role does the microbiome have in that process and i guess part of my sort of, you know, which angle are we looking at? Is it the chicken or the egg? You know, is it, is it, the, is it the lifestyle? Um, is it the diet or is it the microbiome? You know, where do they clash and, and, and you know, who, who's the victor? <laughs> uh, I guess when it came to rugby players, most of them were clinically obese mm. um, from a BMI perspective. Yeah. Um, and then are, because, I guess, of the nature of rugby players in that you'd have lean backs and not lean forwards we had two control groups so we had a low bmi and a high bmi control group we saw no difference at a microbiome level between our high bmi and our low bmi control groups and there's a lot of conflicting research when you look at the microbiome in low and high bmi and that some papers have come out and said that there is certain profiles of microbiome that are associated with obesity and then others will contradict that completely and say that you know there is no obese microbiome and you you also have this cohort of people that would be i guess um clinically obese but metabolically fit so they'd have the same you know microbiome as a, a normal bmi person but yeah. be clinically like like a rugby player i guess and and i guess there's no definitive answer to it and yeah and it's, it's complicated of course by the fact that in athlete populations bmi is you know really can be very misleading because of course yep. it doesn't account for body composition um you know where you look at a heavily muscled but lean rugby player or bodybuilder or whatever with yep. not a lot of fat which you do see a lot of in professional rugby nowadays um but yeah they're morbidly obese according to bmi but just from the non-athlete research gens where we have there's a lot more information out there as it relates to obesity what, what we, you know what 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 do we know or or what do you think um we should be uh thinking about as it relates to the microbiome so the the research on this actually started again with these comparisons of you know germ-free mice 
that actually mice that have a microbiome. And this is fascinating research and has been confirmed by quite a few labs, including actually collaborators of mine. So if you have a germ-free mouse as a, a population of mice without a microbiome, they are actually generally protected from um, obesity if you put them on a, what we call a Western diet. As a, you know, a high sugar, high fat diet needs essentially the microbiome you know, to have a detrimental outcome in mice, which is a fascinating kind of finding. Specifically, if you think about that it's really the conventional mouse also with the microbiome that actually becomes obese, you know, so the microbes would actually compete, you know, for nutrients. Because, you know, you have a lot of microbes in the gut, but it's the germ-free mouse that is protected. Mm. There are now, you know, dozens of mechanisms in the field that are discussed here, you know, um, Microbes, you know, influencing, you know, nutrient uptake, microbes influencing, you know, inflammatory processes as a meaning, you know, that the high fat, high sugar diet drives the metabolic inflammation and that for this you need, you know, microbes, you know, and microbial products that then, you know, translocate into the bloodstream. These uh, short chain fatty acids, you know, that are the result of, of fiber fermentation, they have been associated with anti-inflammatory effects. They have been associated with satiety, so they sense through certain receptors in the gut and induce hormones, you know, that induce satiety. And I could probably continue, you know, some of these short-chain fatty acids are involved in gluconeogenesis, which has been linked to insulin, you know, sensitivity. I would probably come up, I could come up with a little bit of a literature search with 50 mechanisms that are currently investigated you know by which the microbiome contributes to obesity but also you know how food microbiome interactions you know prevent and you know weight gain you know and this is where i'm always coming back to dietary fiber somehow but this is really you know the, the fermentation of dietary fiber into these short chain fatty acids you know is is, is support is supposed to be uh, satiety inducing and it is supposed to be anti-inflammatory um which, you know, the, the, the clear mechanism, especially in humans, isn't exactly established, but I would argue that the, the, also the evidence in experimental models of obesity pretty strong here. Yeah, yeah, well, they, yes, keeps coming back to, to fiber, this fiber gap that, um, that we mentioned earlier. Uh, just because just this does come up a bit, when we talk about translational potential, you know, we've on the one hand, we've had this conversation with Orla. It was done on on uh, human beings, rugby players. You've been mentioning, you know, uh, rodent models, for example. Um, in terms of what we take from that kind of, of research, which for obvious reasons is, um, you know, uh, going to account for huge amounts of research in that area. But but how 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 do we how do we take that information? and then apply it with confidence into a human being real world setting or or is that not necessarily what we're supposed to do yet it's just adding to the picture and maybe some people have taken that a bit far you know what i'm trying what i think is what the current or the majority of the knowledge in the microbiome field is for me at the moment at, at the stage of a hypothesis mm. you know so as you know we have multi-omic studies in human populations, we have observational studies, we have animal studies, mechanistic, you know, studies in animals that we don't know, you know, how well do they actually translate to humans, you know. So I think we are at the stage of where we are, 
we, we are able to, you know, formulate hypotheses that we then, you know, can test in human interventional trials. And this is some, you know, focus of my research groups, you know, that we, we look at this literature and then we say, look, can we actually specifically manipulate the, the, the microbiome or can we use certain, you know, dietary fibers or can we use certain, you know, so-called prebiotics, you know, that target certain populations in the gut and then, you know, can we actually get, you know, the, the, you know, outcomes, the beneficial outcomes that we were actually predicting. You know, I think to a large degree, I would argue that, that this is where the, where the field is and this is, you know, the motivation, you know, to do some of these intervention studies. And I don't know if all are something, you know, to add to that. No, I think it, it, I completely agree. We're, we're still in data collection and yeah. observational stage. But I think until that point, what we do know is diversity is what's key and diversity in your diet, unprocessed diversity, that is, and diversity in your exercise program. And that will drive diversity in your microbiome. Diversity, diversity, diversity. There you go. Yeah. Listen, guys, I, it's been a fantastic conversation um as always there's more questions than answers <laughs> um which is why i love having these conversations and you know I'll, I'll, I'll remind the listeners that i have got a series of other conversations to have with uh, other experts related to this topic oh there's siri talking to me there um i think um we'll have to draw an end to this conversation because uh, we've already been an hour and a half on this, which I think is sort of the limits that we can all get to with this. So um, I'd like to uh, thank you, Orla. Thank you very much for joining us today and um, for sharing your, your input. I'll make sure to, um, to link to, to the paper that we discussed um, that you co-authored. And, and generally, um, you know, if people want to follow you, Orla, um, you know, is there, is there any particular place they can access you and your work? Um, you know, I'm thinking things like uh, ResearchGate or Google Scholar, PubMed uh, website. You know, is there somewhere that you'd like to point listeners to? Yeah, um, I suppose I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Orla. Oh, I think the microphone is turned off. No. Shouldn't be. I can hear her. Yeah. I, think, um, I, might, I might be talking to myself at this point. Jens, can you hear me? I can, yeah, hear, I can hear you. Yeah. Ah, I've totally lost. <laughs> I've now lost everyone here. So <laughs> I'm going to do one of these weird things and talk to my guests without <laughs> them being able to uh, comment. But I am talking to them at the screen and I'm really grateful for both of you to be here uh, on the podcast with me. I'll make sure I link to um, your, uh, you know, relevant sites, etc., so people can access your work. Um, so we'll bring us to a slightly odd end to this podcast, but thank you everyone for listening. I, of course, am Laurent Bank. Look forward to bringing another episode uh, back to you all very soon. Thank you.